There is a 100-year-old mural that is considered to be a masterpiece that is on a wall in the sanctuary of Mercy Church in a town in Spain. And there, this thing, this thing, because it's considered to be a masterpiece, people come from all over to, 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 to see this thing, uh, but because it's 100 years old, it has been, uh, you know, showing its wear. It was done by artist Elias Garcia Martinez, and uh, he was considered to be a master, I mean, a master at uh, certain brush strokes and things like that. Well, because it needs some work, an 80-year-old church member of that congregation named Cecilia Jimenez took it upon herself to touch up the painting. And the painting did need touching up. There was uh, moisture that had gotten into the painting, the colors had faded over time, and it just was not, you know, what it once was when the master had made this painting. So Cecilia initiated her do-it-yourself restoration project of this painting, but it didn't turn out so well. And uh, in fact, uh, because this was something that uh, was... uh, was uh, of such um, magnificent importance, really, to the art world, it, ga- it gained some international attention. And uh, various news outlets picked up on this restoration project. The New York Times, for example, said that it was probably the worst art restoration project of all time. And a Spanish blog called it the restoration that turned into destruction. And a BBC article said the delicate brushstrokes by Elias Garcia Martinez had been buried under a haphazard splattering of paint. The once dignified portrait of Jesus now resembles a crayon sketch of a very hairy monkey in an ill-fitting tunic. You know, they've got to learn how to say what it is that they feel, these people. They're... And in the face of the criticism, Mrs. Jimenez defended her decision to do this restoration project. And, of course, she blamed the parish priest. You know, uh, this mural actually is something that um, really we could compare to the church, the Christian church, because the Christian church was made by the master. He's the one who started the Christian church. He's the one who put it in place. He's the one who gave us the guidelines. He's the one who, you know, gave it his power. But over time, what we've seen is that the Christian church oftentimes has lost its luster, its, its colors have faded, and it's been in need of a restoration project. At various points in time, we've seen that there have been revivals that have taken place, and with those revivals, you know, the, the, there was a restoration project that took place for the Christian church. So the, the Reformation with, with Martin Luther, for example, was one of those times when the Christian church was restored. It was a restoration project that took place. And uh, these days, the church is in a place where some really consider it to be badly in need of a restoration project. In fact, the mainline church, the, the uh, church of uh, uh, the Lutheran church, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, the Episcopalian church, uh, are all considered to be mainline churches that once upon a time had been churches that really had exuded a great deal of influence in culture and, and been very powerful in, in spreading the good news. These days, many people consider to be that, that mainline church to be in a tailspin, a death spiral, that uh, 
they are decreasing in numbers, aging, decreasing in influence, decreasing in effectiveness. And as part of this, not, not so much in, in response to this, but uh, some studies would show that really causing this, some of the mainline church congregations, denominations have chosen rather than to do as Romans 12 advised here where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They've done the opposite. They've chosen to take on a restoration project that involves being conformed to this world and having their mind transformed by this world. And the result is is that even fewer people want to be part of that church because it doesn't have anything powerful or unique to offer. The mainline church largely has botched the restoration project. So the question for us is, for us to be involved in the restoration project, how do we do it so that it's not botched? How do we do it so that it's done right? What it means is imitating not the early church, as some have tried to do, because that was a church for its time, but rather to imitate the one who was the master, the one whose brushstrokes painted this church in the first place, to imitate this one who is the head of the church. The Bible defines it this way. The the Bible defines the Christian church as being the body of Christ, and that's what Romans 12, verse 5 talks about, where it says, you are the body of Christ, and in Christ we are, who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We are one body, which means that we are connected to one another, and we are connected to the head, which is Christ, so that He is our head, He is our mind, He is our heart, He is our soul, He is our spirit. He is the one that this Christian church is all about. To be a believer is to belong to the body. Now, you know, picture your own body now. Okay? And the human body is just an amazing thing. It's an amazing, uh, uh, just a miracle of creation, the intricacies of the human body. This is what the Bible uses to be the example of what we are to be like as, as the Christian church. And we're not just anybody, okay? We are Christ's body. Which means that logically, if we would look at Christ and, and the marks of Christ's identity, that, that His body then should have the same kind of marks of our identity. So, so that if we went, for example, to, uh, to Scripture to look and, and see, well, what was Jesus like? We should be able to look at the Christian church and say that that's what we should be like. We, we can look at the Bible, in other words, as a blueprint for our restoration project. We can find an example of that, for example, with, with uh, Jesus going back to Nazareth, his hometown, where Jesus, by this point in time, had begun his earthly ministry. He uh, was developing a reputation, and now he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, where he was a, a respected and uh, uh, well-known rabbi. In those days, like we can see with Paul later on in, in Scripture, when a rabbi or a teacher or somebody that was well-respected would, would come to town and go to the synagogue, they would be an invited guest preacher at the synagogue. So that in the synagogue, the, the synagogue uh, leader would hand that person a scroll from Scripture. In this particular case, it was a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And then the preacher, it was up to them to choose what it was that they were going to read out of that scroll and then expound on it to explain it. So Jesus took the, the role of, of the prophet Isaiah, and he read this prophecy about 
this one who was expected. And the prophecy gave certain things, characteristics about this one, that if Jesus would be that one, he was going to have to match up with these kinds of characteristics. And it's those same characteristics then that that give both the identity of Jesus and it gives the identity of His church because the church is His body. So when we look at those characteristics, what we can learn is what we should be like in our own restoration project. It begins with this. Luke 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And with that, what we can see is that both Jesus and His church have the Spirit's presence with them. With Jesus, He was born of the Spirit. He was given an empowering of the Spirit at baptism, this outpouring of the Spirit at baptism. And for the church, what happened was that there was this outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. And ever since that time, What we can see is that during times of the restoration projects of the church, there's this outpouring of the Spirit where the Spirit fills the church and the church experiences this new life, this new power that it can bring into the world and transform lives. You know, we as His body will do certain things. We will talk about Jesus, but we won't just talk about Him. We will do things in His name for Him, but we won't just do those things. Instead, what we are as His church is a church where people can come, you and I can come, and we can meet the living, real God. And that's what our mission mission is all about here at at St. Michael Lutheran Church, is that is that we are about connecting people to the living God, connecting real live people to the real live God, because that is where the action is. That is what it's all about. In Scripture, uh, if you had a body without a spirit, you had one that is dead. And in, the, in, the, in, in the beginning of Genesis, when, when we have the story of creation, we can see that God breathed life into people. And that same word that it uses for breath is the same word for spirit, which means that a church without the Spirit of God present is dead. But a a church with the Spirit of God present is a church that's alive. The very first characteristic of Jesus and the very first characteristic of His church is one that has the Spirit's presence. Secondly, both Jesus and His church are generous with the good news. It says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. When the body of Christ is looking to connect people to the living God, it doesn't get stingy about it. It doesn't look for ways to keep it into ourselves and to keep this a secret But instead, it looks for ways to share it. It looks for ways to spread it. It looks for ways to really bring it to the people in their language so that they might understand it, comprehend it, and accept it and receive it for themselves. And this is why we do certain things here around this place. Like, for example, worship in the park. Why do we go to all the trouble of packing up all this stuff and moving out in the summertime to go out and worship in the park down in Cherry Hill Village. It's so we can move this gospel, the Spirit of God, the presence of the living God, into the lives of the people in the community. 
So that even somebody who's walking by to try to go to, um, you know, the, the farmer's market in Canton on that morning might hear the good news message and possibly come to believe. We're bringing it to people. This summer we're going to be back in Kellogg Park again for music in the park. And I, I think it's just really cool how, you know, here we are in this wonderful park in, in the middle of Plymouth, and these people come, they sit, they sit at their tables outside of these restaurants, not expecting that they're going to hear the greatest news that there possibly is that, that night or, you know, as, as they're there. But sure enough, they sit down and hear these songs that are singing about the, the God who loves them. I mean, what a great thing. It's, you know, it's, it's because of this that we want to be generous with the good news that we do things like uh, staff the church the way, the way that we do, you know, so that we might be able to reach and share the good news with people. It's why we uh, invite so many groups to come and share our building. You know, there are times during the week when I will drive by the church and I get this knot in my stomach <clears throat> because I, I look and I see that the parking lot is jam-packed with cars. And I think, what did I forget? <sighs> you know, and, and all it is really is all of these groups that are here. You know, we've got Bible studies, we've got, but we've got outside groups that are coming in to use our facility and, and to... Uh, experience our, our hospitality that we are extending in Jesus' name. We're doing that so that we can be generous with the good news. Next week, we're going to be hearing from a couple of our mission partners who are uh, going to be here sharing in the uh, sermon message with me up here, and we're going to hear from them about what God is doing uh, in their lives and their ministry and things like that. And we, we support them, partner with them, because we want to be generous with the good news. As a matter of fact, even this, this area up here that we have newly remodeled here and dedicated this fall, we've done because we want to be generous with the good news. We, you know, it's not about us. It, it's, there's, there's an awful lot of things that we can look at and we can say, well, you know, if it was just all about us, well, you know, uh, we don't need a whole lot. You know, we could be, um, you know, it's, it's good enough for us. We want to be generous with the good news. And share it with other people. Because why would we want to keep this great news about Jesus Christ in? This good news is this. It's about the love that God has for us. It's about the love and the passion that God has for lost people, for that lost sheep. It's about this love that God has that sets people free, which is the next characteristic of Jesus and His church. The third trait, Luke 4, verse 18 where He sets people free. He says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners in Luke 4.18, which setting people free is a powerful thing because there's all kinds of things that can bind us, keep us captive with sin, with, with guilt, with shame. It can bind us and and keep us captive and prevent us from living that life that God has designed for us to live, that God created for us to live. It's like these two friends back um, in, in high school who uh, both had wanted to apply to this elite college. And one got, got in right away. He was accepted. That was Wayne. The other guy was Dave. And Dave uh, didn't get in right away. Okay, this Dave is not me, by the way. Um, did not get in right away. And uh, instead, he, he, was, uh, he received a deferment, which means that at some point in time, you know, if there's room and if his grades are right and they like his transcript, you know, they might accept him. They both wanted to get him badly to this. They had one semester left now of, of high school. 
And during that last semester, Wayne discovered freedom. He discovered the freedom to be able to study the things that he wanted to study. He felt the freedom to be able to take extra, get involved with extracurricular activities that, he, that interested him. He formed a band. He started to learn how to rock climb. He started a new, a new ministry to inner city kids where he taught them how to rock climb. And that ministry continued for 10 years after he graduated from high school. And Dave, on the other hand, felt like he needed to beef up his resume, so he began to take extracurricular activities that he wasn't interested in, but he thought that it would be good for him to be able to get into the college. He took the same courses as Wayne, but he didn't do quite as well as Wayne because Wayne was able to, he felt the freedom to be able to write about the things that interested him on his papers, and he did extremely well, the best grades of his high school career. At the end of that time, Dave was exhausted. Wayne was energized. What was the difference? The difference was that Wayne knew that he was accepted. And Dave knew that he was yet to be accepted. And we have this good news that says that you are set free because you are accepted by the God who loves you, who sent his son to die on that cross for you, to show you, to demonstrate to you his love for you. Why would we keep that in? Why would we keep that to ourselves? Now he's come to set the prisoners free. So Luke 4.19 says it this way. It is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What that's talking about is life on the other side of debt. And not specifically financial debt, but if you've been in that position where you've paid off some debt, how freeing that is to be on the other side of that. Now, now here what we're talking about is uh, specifically this, this thing that was called the year of Jubilee. And that would happen, it was supposed to happen anyway, it didn't happen really this way, but it was supposed to happen every 50 years. And it, would, and, and it would happen like this, that when the promised land was first given to the Israelites, it was given to them in, you know, piecemeal uh, to, to families and to clans and to tribes of Israel. But over time, these people to whom the land was given the promised land was given. Lost, many of them lost their land. They lost their land because they sold it or maybe they uh, gave it in exchange for the relief of a debt or they uh, had it stolen from them, but they lost their land. But in the year of Jubilee, the, the, the 50th year, it was the year of the Lord's favor, and in that year, debts were forgiven and people could come home, come home to their land. We have lost our land. We've lost our home. We lost it because of sin. It stole it from us. But in this, the year of the Lord's favor, the debts are forgiven, and we can come home again. We can come home to Him. It's, it's like the, the image of the prodigal son's father standing at the end of the driveway with his arms open, saying, Welcome home, my son. Welcome home. That's the message that we have. The year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, and that's the message that His church, our church, has to proclaim and must proclaim because we are in a restoration project. And this restoration project is to restore us to the brushstrokes of the master painter, the one who fashioned the church in the first place. It's His heart 
that beats within us. His heart that beats for the lost. His heart that beats to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to set the prisoners free. Amen.